I don't want people to get into the mode of, oh, well, now we have more time to prepare, so we're going to do it better. I want them to remember that this is still a pandemic and to think about people's well-being and that the equity issues are not going to disappear because of the second time you're doing it. Uh, the equity is a little bit easier to imagine digitally if you focus on access to technology, but there's more than that. Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Caravalli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. I'm joined today by Professors Mahabeli Asao Bianoe and Jesse Stamel, three university educators who I turn to for their insights on equity and inclusion, digital pedagogy, and going gradeless. I invited them because I've long valued their perspectives on a variety of topics and believe they provide some unique insights that can help us navigate toward next year, especially at the college level. This episode is part one of our conversation about college under COVID-19. I think I want to start with just, just kind of looking back on this last year, and many people have commented on how COVID-19 has been something of a magnifying glass in education. Uh, it has really brought things that maybe were invisible or not so visible to us before and made them just unbearably evident to us. Maha, what are some of your experiences and what are your thoughts on this question of what has been magnified by this pandemic? So, I mean, I wrote this article and I'm just gonna riff off of it here, is that I think uh, issues of equity have come to the surface and issues of Mm -hmm. um, trying to focus on socio-emotional development and needs of students uh, versus, you know, I always had problems with outcomes-based curriculum and focusing on meeting your learning outcomes and not looking at the differences between students and what they need and what kind of supports they need. Uh, And also, uh, so the way way curricula in in higher education are designed, when we had to pivot to online and trying to figure out how to make it work, people trying to figure out how to make the exact same thing that was working in college now work online in a situation of a global pandemic, I think was very problematic. Like for me, it was sort of like actually rethinking my course altogether. Like how can my courses be useful to students in this time where they're going through so much and the whole world is going through so much. And, and what happened, I think a lot as my main role is to support other faculty, right. In this, and definitely during the time of this pandemic. Right. And so issues of equity, like helping faculty who don't normally think the way Asal, Jesse and I think, helping them try to see that not all of their students would be able to make every synchronous session, for example, Uh, helping them try to think like there might be lots of people in that household trying to use the internet at the same time and how that might affect that. And then also thinking about students' well-being. Like, you know, I've I've been hearing and reading a lot about, for example, trauma informed pedagogy these days. And the thing is, this thing existed before the pandemic when you had a few students in your class, maybe half your class who had been through trauma, but you didn't always know if they didn't bring a letter saying that they were going through some particular mental illness right now. Right. Right. Um, But the thing is, right now, everybody is going through something. But but that kind of thing is, you know, the the kind of um, actions that you take and the kind of uh, values that you hold to be able to do this for now should should probably transcend the pandemic itself. And, and hopefully become sort of the regular practice. Um, and then there were also a lot of ethical issues that came up, which we can talk about later. Um, but for me, it was, I think the most important thing that, um, that I felt students needed and that we needed to do is because of the additional element of social distancing or physical distancing, everybody's socio-emotional needs were high. And so we ha- I, for me, it was really important to create social spaces for students because they might not be doing that themselves. Like they talked about how difficult it was to do group work, for example, 
without being together. And I think they were missing the sort of informal spaces and things like that that normally don't have to happen in class because there's so much other space for them. And those are just my first right. uh, couple of thoughts. I'm, I'm, willing, I'm really looking forward to see what Jesse and Asal have in mind as well. Yeah. Uh, so Jesse, what, what would you add to that in terms of what have you seen magnified? Now your classes are you know, probably pretty comfortable with that pivot, or at least you are comfortable with that pivot to, toward the, the digital pedagogy. But uh, what have you noticed? You know, I, I guess I would hesitate to say that any of us is comfortable. <laughs> I mean, it, no matter how much experience I have teaching online, how much experience I have teaching hybrid, how much experience I have teaching using flexible pedagogies, trauma-informed pedagogies, I have no experience teaching in this kind of emergent, um, this sort of emergent pandemic crisis pedagogy. Uh, and I think that very few of us do. Um, and what experience we do have isn't specific to this particular situation. So I think it's important for us to recognize that even if we were competent or good online teachers before this happened, we faced very specific struggles in this moment um, that we had to grapple with. I guess the thing that I would say that I noticed, and this is following along what's already been said, but the the ways in which we have to recognize that the students who are most likely to be struggling the most right now were likely struggling before their traumas just weren't visible to us in quite the same way. The right. thing I've been thinking about also is the degree to which all of us are simultaneously experiencing a shared experience of trauma mm. and recognizing and acknowledging that that changes our ability to work and the ways that we work. I just got done reading some research about loneliness and isolation, which mm. loneliness and isolation is something that we're all experiencing right now. Right. And something that others were experiencing even even before this, and that is probably amplified for them in this moment. But the research I was reading was talking about the degree to which just feelings of loneliness and isolation actually increase mortality rates. Oh. So they affect our physical bodies and they affect our bodies ability to deal with other health concerns. Mm. And so when we're facing feelings of loneliness and isolation that have a negative effect on our mortality, trying to think about how that also impacts how we learn, when we learn, becomes a huge question that I think we have to deal with before we even talk about the specific practices we might use. Right. And there has been a very big focus on practices and tools. I, it's been kind of scary, you know, moving into this next year that there's been so much focus on that sort of logistical aspect or um, utilitarian aspect of it. And you're right. That is one part that we really do need to attend to. Asal, you share Maha's concern about outcomes. I've been reading a little bit of yours and you really, you know, have, have mentioned that. I wonder if any of that has been magnified, your, your reasons for having that in your own assessment practices. What have you been seeing with your students as we've moved into this uh, pandemic? Yeah, well, my um, experiences, uh, I mean, my, my own personal transition from a, a class that was designed originally for face-to-face -to, -face to, uh, to a purely online uh, experience for the students 
and myself uh, in our pandemic-inspired world right now has been um, actually fairly seamless. Um, mm. And I didn't realize how much of the of um, the components I was using in my class uh, worked really well uh, asynchronously as well as via Zoom and so forth. But the things that really strike me um, that I find really uh, that get that have gotten magnified mostly when I talk to other mm. colleagues or when I read stuff. Uh, articles and such online and when I just make observations is that um, I think we we have when we are face to face in our classrooms with our students we often ironically forget about the whole person that we're educating whole people that have lives mm. and are that are complicated that complicate their learning and make and nuance their learning in our classrooms and that actually the learning that's happening isn't really mostly in the classroom it's in the world so that our right. classrooms or our courses are inside our course classrooms as well as outside of it and when we don't have an inside anymore all we seem to have are an, is an outside and our students are existing and learning and and even attending their classes outside in their in their in their uh, their houses and their apartments and their dorm rooms and so forth away from us it's ironic that we we realize that there's all this other part of our students that we really should have been attending to and that we probably haven't right. been. At least I know that this is something that I've been working on over the last um, decade in my own uh, classrooms, thinking about ways to be more mindful in bodily as well as intellectually, as well as uh, how we feel when we're doing our, our, our the labors of the classrooms. So for me, that, yeah. uh, that, that, that attending to the whole student and the whole bit of learning seems really important and a really good affordance, actually. Like, I think that, that we should be taking that with us when we get through this. Um, yes. Uh, and so that that's the that's the uh, the change that can't we can't go back to. I don't. I would never want to not consider how my students live and how they um, read um, at home or on the bus or wherever and so forth. The only other thing I'll, I'll say that I'll add to the really smart stuff that Maha and Jesse have already said is that I think that we're in some sense, in a metaphorical sense, we're always in some kind of pandemic, and some of us mm -hmm. have just been affected by it more than others. I'll give you an example: yeah. um, racism, yeah. white supremacy in the academy. That's a kind mm. of pandemic that only really affects some people and others can get a chance to sort of look away or not attend to it. And I think that creates a set of um, there's lots of research on on the trauma of racism, even the, the small, the small thing, the small slights that happen every day that that affect the lives of people of color all the time. And I think this is this is just simply um, uh, widening that scope a bit. But even so, I've seen read uh, research. I'm sure many of you have seen some of these articles recently about how even this, the current coronavirus um, has affected um, African American communities in the United States at much higher rates than than um, their peers across. Um, uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, standing it has to has everything to do with the way in which we are we our our uh, society is structured in certain ways and people are afforded certain opportunities or not and we're always in a some kind of pandemic and we should be always vigilant to be looking at the ways in which we can attend to the whole student i think so that we can perhaps yeah. mitigate some of those things you know one of the related questions has been the way some of those inequities kind of unfold in terms of grading and credentialing and, and just people's access to those, you know, valued signifiers that our institutions hand out. And that I, I think what I've been seeing in a lot of your writing, Asal, is, is just how there's uh, inequitable access to that and probably even more pronounced now. 
what are some of the issues with regard to grades? This, you know, we do have something of a focus on grading and assessment and the way that can actually increase or decrease access. You've written a whole book on this subject, Dasal, about labor-based grading contracts, which is really a unique approach to what we would call ungrading or going gradeless. You see it as an avenue toward equity and writing assessment and actually disrupting some of those white supremacist values uh, that we see in the academy. Um, you wrote a recent post that COVID-19 might be a opportune time to try this out, quote unquote, safely, uh, as you say. Could you give us a little bit in a nutshell what you mean by labor-based grading and why you think it might be a good fit for our current predicament and, and even moving forward? Sure. And I think uh, Jesse probably could speak to this as well as and, yes. uh, who do similar kinds of, um, you know, ungrading strategies in their classes and have, have sure. promoted those things for years. But um, in, in a nutshell, um, labor-based grading contracts or labor-based grading um, writing assessment in a class produces a final course grade without putting uh, grades of quality on or numbers or those kinds of symbols on individual performances or pieces of writing, essays, et cetera, that's accumulated through the course. Instead, it focuses students and, and the teacher's attention on the labors that were required to do anything in the class, to do the learning of the class. So that means that from the, um, the if you want to call them outcomes, I call them goals, because uh, that's a bit mm -hmm. more open-ended, but the goal, the learning goals of the class, as well as what's required each week, um, those things all get articulated as labor. And so that mm -hmm. means that the, requ the requirements technically of any assignment, if you will, is, is really about time on task, or steps mm. to, to, to follow, and then perhaps words written or read, depending on what the assignment is. And so I focus on my assigning of, of things as in labor instructions, which are really process instructions that allow students to have give good, clear signals of what kind of learning I want them to, to enact or, or, or go through. What they produce in terms of writing mm -hmm. or literacy performances will vary. And I, I, I leave it very broad in terms of what I'm mm -hmm. expecting. Um, and because there are no grades placed on any assignments, that opens up the, the assessment portion to be a much richer responses that can, uh, that can take into account a lot of different kinds of expectations and readers, therefore a lot of different kinds of linguistic competencies to bring to bear on one, uh, per, for instance, one essay, that if we're assessing mm. it. So this, so for instance, peer assessment or peer um, feedback will uh, can look a lot different and does look a lot different because there's no yardstick by which anyone's judging other people by, right? That is, they're not mm -hmm. judging them by what, I'm, what they think I'm going to say or my rubric or what have you. We might create a rubric, but, our, but mm -hmm. my rubrics tend to be um, uh, dimension-based rubrics, which uh, are dimensions of writing that we want feedback and understanding on from our readers. So we get those readers' experiences of that dimension of the writing. And then they tell us, and this is the magic, I think, in the assessments mm -hmm. that they give to their peers, the, the assessor or reader tells the writer not just their experience of their of the draft, but also how they come to those expectations and how and mm -hmm. why those expectations are important to them in a, in a document like this, in a class like this. So it really opens up the ecology of the classroom to do much more than simply measure students by some predetermined standard and then say, you're good and you're bad or you're up to snuff or you're not. So for me, it's really allows for um, things like students write to their own languages. 
um, and mm. I, which I think is really, really important. Who would want to, to rob somebody of the language of their nurture or tell them that it's, mm. it's not good enough to do the academic thinking um, that we're acquiring in a class? I don't think that's, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's uh, a, a, a very um, inclusive or academic thing to do. Instead, I'd mm -hmm. rather open up the, the academy and see how it can change for the better. So, so for me, labor-based grading contracts are, all, are really all about disrupting those normal assumptions about how do I learn, what am I expecting in a class when I turn something in, and what, what is that going to give me in, in reality? I like, always like to say, grades don't teach students anything. All they do is measure. Right. Um, but so what really does teach? Well, I think what really teaches is someone's process of learning. So if we focus yeah. our attention on those things, then I think we have a much better chance of doing all this kind of, all the good critical things that we want from our students all the time. So. Mm, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to me. Um, you know, having read through some of your book and, and, um, you know, so much grading reform is so focused on, we got to focus on the learning outcomes and, and you have that sort of distrust about who's setting those learning outcomes and, and, and whose view and whose standards are privileged. I, I think that I'm going to have to have you on a little bit uh, sometime in the future, just because I really would love to unpack that as a totally different articulation of, of, of where we need to go in terms of grades. Jesse, you are also known for your leadership in ungrading. You've written quite a few things on the topic of ungrading. Do you feel that this situation has vindicated any of what we've been advocating for in terms of assessment, grading, and reporting? I, do we have any opportunities here to further advocate for these practices? You know, I guess um, I guess I would say that I don't know that I want or would be glad <laughs> for this situation to vindicate us. Right. And part that was of the a bad reason word. that... <laughs> well, not I a think great that way part of the <laughs> part of the reason I say that is not not necessarily to harp on that word in, yeah. in particular, but to say that one of the things that I love about education is that every teacher that students encounter is different, and every relationship mm. that develops between me and a classroom full of students mm -hmm. is different, and students develop different relationships with one another and context becomes so incredibly important. And so one of the things I've long said is that I don't want every teacher to teach like me. I don't proselytize for my approach to teaching. What I'm really interested in is getting, uh, getting teachers to ask critical questions of their approaches. Mm. And one thing I loved so much about what Asao was describing is the way in which um, the way in which he brings his students into that critical conversation of yes. the pedagogical approaches, that it isn't his pedagogy in the classroom, that is, in fact, it's a pedagogy that he shares with students, and that his approach to grading is, is as much about creating space for students to um, succeed in the class as it is about creating space for students to question their reality, to question their own educations, to question their own ability to take agency over their educations, over their writing. And he described that so incredibly well um, just now. And I, one of the things that I also love about the idea of labor-based grading mm -hmm. is, and the way that he describes it, is that so much of the work of learning is actually invisible labor. And he talked just then about the difference between labor and product. And right. so much of our education system is based on product. Yes. And yet the product is only such a tiny fraction of the work 
that mm -hmm. is happening in education. And when we think about what that, where that work is happening, it's happening inside conversations. It's happening in tangents. It's happening inside of students' brains. Mm -hmm. So much of that work is 100% invisible to us as a teacher. Yes. Um, and it's also invis invisible to the fellow students. And sometimes it's even somewhat invisible to the student themselves, <laughs> unless we create spaces where they can think about and reflect on their own education and learning, which is part of the reason why self-reflection and self-evaluation and metacognition are such an absolute crucial component to my pedagogy. There's so much of the learning that students do that is is impossible for me to see, impossible for me to witness. And yeah. so I need students in order to, for me to be useful to them, I need students to be writing about and thinking and reflecting on their processes, their learning processes. Right. People often ask me, oh, your, your approach relies so much on self-reflection and dialogue. And mm -hmm. what about classes of 150 students how would I do this in a class of 150? Right. And my response is, how could you not do this in a class of 150? Because yeah. if you have 150 students, how could you possibly see inside all of their brains or see inside all of their brains at once? So when I have a huge class, I need self-reflection even more because I need it just for feedback so that I can understand what's happening in the classroom. So I guess what I would say is that what I hope out of this this moment is that it encourages us all to continue asking these questions about what we're learning looks like, when it happens. And also, I guess I hope that our pedagogies continue to proliferate so that we're doing we're taking more different approaches mm -hmm. to this work. I want my students, if they're taking five classes, I want them to be learning in five different ways. I mean, the one thing I don't want is I don't want them to be experiencing abuse or expe right. experiencing bureaucracy as a kind of abuse. And right. I certainly don't want them to be in environments where their traumas and their own identities are not recognized or acknowledged. But I don't want them to be learning the same way across five classes or across their entire college career. So interesting. I mean, so much of so much educational reform, again, is 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 kind of a standardized approach and, and trying to get everyone on board with a standardized approach. It's it's so interesting that so much of what you say, I think also, as I was saying, you know, about carving out that space is is a kind of modesty on the part of the teacher, uh, a, a modesty about I, I am not going to know, you know, the soul of what is happening with students. I mean, you know, what is going on within them? And, and as you said, Jesse, I mean, they may not even know what all is going on with them as they go through this learning process. I love it that both of your processes leave space for students to have kind of like, you know, a private self in the midst of, of a learning experience uh, where they can encounter the learning and to grow in that way where, where we're not just intruding on that inner space at every turn. Maha, I want to come to you because, um, you know, many teachers without your digital pedagogy background have had to figure it out on the fly. Many professors and teachers have had to do that. And they're hoping to retool in time for next year. And we're already seeing that happen to a certain extent. 
uh, unpacking what happened and this sort of emergency learning that had to occur. And then if we do need to go into next year in a hybrid or, or a distance capacity, um, how can we do this better? You've written a, a little bit about this, reimagining digital literacies from different standpoints, uh, feminist, post-colonial, culturally responsive. And, and just recently you wrote a post discussing some of the literacies you think teachers will need uh, during COVID-19 and arguably uh, in digital pedagogy generally. As people without that background look ahead to next year, what are some of the things that you hope they'll be focusing on and, and the people helping them to develop their plans for next year? What do you hope their focus will be? Right. So, I mean, one of the first things I, I want to say there is that I don't want people to get into the mode of, oh, well, now we have more time to prepare, so we're going to do it better. I want them to remember that this is still a pandemic and to think about people's yes. well-being and that the equity issues are not going to disappear because it's the second time you're doing it. Yes. <laughs> and that the socio-emotional needs. So these are the equity and socio-emotional are two of the big literacies that I think people should have. And then doing it digitally yes. is much harder. Uh, the equity is a little bit easier to imagine digitally if you focus on access to technology, but there's more than that. There are mm. also um, how much, for example, the decision to give students uh, pass-fail options, which happened in a lot mm. of institutions, which I think for you is what you meant when you say it was a win for ungrading. For example, mm. some institutions did it for this semester, but they think, you know, no, no next semester we're not going to do it anymore. I'm like, what are you talking about? The same issues are still going to be there. <laughs> there are still equity issues. Even if you give every student um, a special internet connection or whatever, some people have kids at home, some people have people who are sick that they're taking care of. The, the whole pandemic situation is, is complicated. There are people who've lost their, their sources of income. You know, So these things are not going to yeah. get better with time. They're probably going to get worse, and we still don't know what's going to happen. So that's one thing just to keep in mind as they go through that. The socio-emotional literacy is maybe the one I want to focus on. And then the other one, I want to go back to the issues of agency that both Asal and Jesse talked about. So the, mm -hmm. the socio-emotional literacy part is when we talk about what Asal was talking about, like the whole student, as a human being, yes. um, we need to also, as teachers, be a whole human being for our students to model that kind of behavior and to try mm. to get to know. I know that if you have 100 or 1,000 students, this is really hard, but definitely if you don't, you, and even if you have a large number of students, try to get students to be human with each other, to create spaces where people can be human together to help each other through the learning process, regardless of what you're teaching. And I'm trying to give like generic advice that anyone can do. Rather than, right. obviously, for certain disciplines, there are certain things that I will help them think about and think through. But this socio-emotional literacy is really important. And then the other thing is, one of the, one of the good things that um, some administrators, at least at my institution, were talking about is, like, try to be flexible, try to not take attendance, like, students might not be able to make it synchronous sessions, try to go asynchronous, try to do, uh, give students different options, reduce the workload, and things like that. And I think yeah. that those things help you focus on what's really important, which is usually not the regular learning outcomes. I focus on what's really important. And actually, this kind of thing with flexibility, that's one of the advantages of online learning. It's not one of the disadvantages of this situation. Do you understand what I mean? Like yeah. online learning is supposed to be flexible. It's supposed to be for people who are busy with other things. People didn't choose to be online. So it's even more important to be flexible with them. But I think the point, I mean, the, the main thing is don't think of the next stage as, oh, this is going to get easier because we've had this experience. You still right. need to be careful of all the things that you have to be careful about. And you need to get better at being a human online and providing social spaces for students and giving students a little bit of agency over how they go through their learning process because 
one of the things that I think it's kind of clear from what Jesse and Asa were saying, but I'm just going to say it out loud also, is that you can't give students agency over their grades if you're not giving them agency over the entire learning process. You know, mm. do they get, like, I teach digital literacies. My students are good and bad at different aspects of digital literacy, so I give them freedom to, to explore deeper the one that they want or that they're interested in, in the way that they're interested in, as long as they mm. reflect on the process in the end. That's all we have time for in part one of our two-part series on college under COVID-19. I hope you can join me for the second part of my interview with Mahabili, Jesse Stamel, and Asal Bianoe. If you'd like more information about Teachers Going Gradeless, check out our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com, our Facebook group, Teachers Going Gradeless, or you can follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Please subscribe to the podcast to catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening.